Hi, I'm David Kukoff, author of Children of the Canyon and editor of Los Angeles in the 1970s. And I'm here with Ronald Colby, author of Night Driver. Ron, good to be talking with you today. Good morning. Very nice to be speaking with you, gentlemen. I guess my first question would be, you know, the standard, what was the impetus for you to write Night Driver? So I know you've worked in the film business for a long time, but uh, why a novel? Well, yeah, I had written several screenplays and so on and so forth. What happened going back, I don't know, almost 50 years, if I can admit to that, uh, I was offered a job at uh, Warner Brothers. And I just moved from uh, New York after working on Godfather 2, where I was the uh, location supervisor for New York. And it was actually a big job. Uh, with all the New York stuff with Robert De Niro and so on and so forth and uh, went on for nine months, the prep and the shoot. And I came out to L.A. and trying to hustle my way into directing a film. But ultimately, I was offered a job at Warner Brothers. And uh, it dragged on and on uh, before I got that phone call. And meanwhile, you know, I was married, had two children, and uh, my money was dwindling. And all of a sudden, this one character, who I did not have a good relationship with earlier on in my career, came into Warner Brothers and basically said, no, we don't want this guy Colby here. And uh, suddenly I was broke. I had no money. And uh, Yellow Cab went out of business and Christmas was coming. And I looked at my two children and I said, well, I better do something. So I went out and uh, I'm an enterprising guy. I've worked in a lot of different things. And uh, I drove a cab for a while. And as I drove the cab, I said, there's a wealth of material out here. And uh, while I didn't really use any of it in the novel, I was inspired to, you know, start writing. And the book took a long time to come to fruition, obviously, since it's just been published. But that's the background story. It's interesting you say that because obviously the latter-day equivalent of the yellow cab would be the Uber or Lyft driver. And it is a huge, huge ad on the side of a building right by downtown Los Angeles, right by the 10, the 10 freeway that Lyft took out. And it says... Here's to the writers, the disruptors, the entrepreneurs. We know that you're more than just a driver. And it's a really nice, I think, message to reminding us all that many people like yourself take a spot job as a, as a driver or, or Uber or cab driver. And yet at the same time, you know, and it's supposed to just be a, you know, a way to, 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 to keep the larder loaded. Uh, but in your case, obviously, it was the inspiration for this wonderful book. So hopefully anybody out there listening who's doing the same and uh, you know, driving to make ends meet will view that not just as a means to an end, but as a potential end in and of itself. Yeah, you have to keep your creative juices going, uh, even if you're just, uh, you know, screwing on uh, bottle caps and stuff. I have to say it was it was hard, uh, the work, but uh, we don't have to dwell on that. But uh, I made quite a bit of money in the beginning uh, until all the other cab companies caught on and started loading cabs in. Then they put 
monitors out at the airport and so on and so forth. But in the beginning, you know, we were triple loading uh, out at the airport and uh, different places. And it was actually fairly lucrative in the beginning. So let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Night Driver is structured as a, a, a revenge mission of sorts. How did that part of the novel uh, come to you? Obviously, like you said, you didn't maybe use your incidentals, your day-to-day cab experiences, but there was, ob- there was something to your vocation that, uh, that, that lent itself this book. Uh, what, what about the story uh, gripped you so in t- taking it on? Well, it's interesting, and I haven't really thought about it a lot myself. Uh, and sometimes I look at it and I wonder, well, you know, I don't hang out with these guys, like the criminal element in there. And I've never spent too much time with detectives, uh, albeit a little bit in New York City. Um, so I'm not sure how I quite came about with that, except the idea of, of loss and murder and what do you do about it? Uh, you know, we have, I don't know how many tens of thousands of murders in this country every year. And most people, you know, leave it to the police or this or that. But uh, this particular character, part of his code, as it were, uh, growing up in uh, New York City on in Hell's Kitchen and everything, that's not the thing that you let go. And I tried to make that clear in the book. And... Uh, so finally, he ran it to the end and was exhausted. And then suddenly we have this cute meet in the bar. And uh, then you wonder, well, what's he going to do now? And that's always a good question. When things get comfortable, are you ready to disrupt it out of a case of honor? I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie The Salton Sea? You know, I think I have. I'm trying to remember it, but uh, I see a lot of movies. But uh... it's interesting. Uh, the um, your your book obviously started way before they made this movie because I think this movie came out in the late '90s. Um, with Al Kilmer, but it's about this jazz musician who um, I did not. We, see now that you okay. mentioned that, he, he plays a saxophonist who, when we first meet him, he's you know involved in this in this world of crystal meth, and he's you know, he's getting, he's just tweaking with all, all these real, real marginal sorts and low lifes and whatnot. But the first act break, the reveal that gets the movie really started is that he's actually a jazz musician who's gone undercover in this world to help solve the, you know, to, to solve the murder of his wife and kid. Um, and I just, I, I find what you just said a minute ago, the idea of personal, you know, like most of leaves to the cops, but what happens when you just, you, you know, you yourself decide that there's a more personal vendetta and that you won't be satisfied until, unless you've had some measure of involvement yourself. And that's what I think is so interesting with this book. You, you said it in Los Angeles in uh, the mid seventies. Can you talk a little bit about why that setting, why Los Angeles and why the time period was so, was so gripping, was, was so important to you? Well, in, in all honesty, that that's it was in 1976, I think, uh, right after Jimmy Carter got elected, that I actually uh, jumped into the cab, and uh, so, and you know, I, there is a certain thing I've never admitted that 
to anybody I've ever driven a cab, but I think it's probably time to mention it. But uh, I've also been a ocean lifeguard and a bartender and some really cool saloons in New York City and Greenwich Village and so on and so forth. Everything you'd have to do as a playwright and, uh, and a novelist and so on and so forth. But so that's when I started it. And also, you know, it's intriguing to not have to deal with cell phones and all these other things. Uh, a rather more simple time, if you can imagine, uh, just 30 years ago, but it or 40 years ago, but it was more simple. And uh, so this thing's had a long life uh, in one incarnation or another. Uh, and I have to admit, you know, being a screenwriter and having written, I don't know, about 13 of them, uh, I'm not above stealing from my own material. And so early on, I had 150 pages or something of this novel. And uh, a famous writer said, oh, send it to my agent. And I sent it to the guy and I didn't hear from him. Months went by. Then I found out he died. Uh, Then uh, I came up with the idea of, well, it could be a comedy. You know, you could do something. So I wrote an outline for a TV series called Taxi Taxi. And I went around town pitching it. And then six months later, you know, at some big agencies, and six months later, there was a show called Taxi. Mm-hmm. Ran for eight years. <clears throat> then I went on and I did something else I can't remember exactly. And there was another TV show. I sent it to a friend of mine and He kept saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to write an outline for it. And he never did. And then a TV show came out about some cop that was driving a cab at night. And each one of these things was deflating. Meanwhile, I'd I'd go out and produce a movie or something, and I wouldn't have any time to work on it. The last incarnation was, uh, I said, you know, this would... We were, I was talking to friends of mine, some cinema verite type guys, and uh, we thought this would be a great thing. We could maybe go out and cast it and shoot it at night uh, with some new video cameras. And I wrote to uh, the head of HBO uh, documentaries, and I said, uh, you know, this is, and it's like a confessional in there and so on and so forth. And the next thing I know, there was this show, Taxi Cab Confessional. And so I threw up my hands and I said to my late wife, I said, that's it. I'm just going to finish the book and let the chips fall where they may. And uh, so I did. And uh, that's what you have today. So it's had a history. It's it's an extraordinary history, and 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 very often I, I find that that's the case behind our our most cherished creative endeavors. They, I feel like God sometimes wants not to, you know, version into the spiritual, but God or whatever the universe wants us to to work a little harder, or to or to earn it, or to see how badly we want it for something that's not just a gig or not just an assignment. If it's really something that you feel has to be birthed. Well, you're going to have some childbirth pains. Um, I, I, my, my novel, Children of the Canyon, um, I conceived of in 1996 
when I was writing with my then writing partner, um, we were writing Disney movies. And we had a nice little gig as, you know, wonderful world of Disney, pretty much their in-house team, their go-to guys writing movie after movie for them. But I'd had this, but I, I read Peter Biskin's Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, all about the film world of the 60s and 70s and the, 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 you know, the renaissance in American film that, during that time. And I was reading about the Schneider brothers, Bert and Harold, and realized, oh, I knew Harold Schneider kind of pretty well uh, growing up. His son and I used to play football together, and he was always hanging around the house of my best friend growing up. And I used to pal around with these kids in this canyon in Brentwood, off Kent, you know, and we would kind of make our own fun and run around. And meanwhile, I realized I'd been at the periphery of all this crazy, great creative energy growing up. And I said, what about if I, what, what, what if I were to write a book, you know, we've seen Joan Didion and her Joni Mitchell and all that, that whole world's been well represented from the adult perspective, but we've never seen it through the eyes of a child. And what about, what if we saw a kid growing up in that great Lower Canyon heyday with all the counterculture and we just witnessed the death of the counterculture through his eyes and in his life growing up one chapter at a time. And that was the impetus for my book. But when I, I came up with the idea in 1996 and it wasn't published until like, like yours, almost 20 years later. Uh, I didn't finish writing it. I started writing it in 2000, for, in earnest in 2006, put it down in 2007 when I ran, just ran out of creative energy, taught film and television writing for four years at Northwestern. And then I, the day I finished, I got on a bus out of Evanston and started writing the outline of the rest of the book and sat down and plowed through it uh, without finishing. Um, and thank God I did. But like yours, it had its own, you know, it, it wasn't quite as, Interesting that you went the TV and you know that you were going the TV route and film and and you kept getting upended at every turn by a competing project until you went back to the the source material in its purest form and out came the novel. Um, I just I just I, you know I, I hope you I hope I hope you you you're, I hope you feel as as satisfied and as you know for as circuitous a journey as it was as um, as, as as sanguine about your journey as I do about mine. Well, first of all, David, I'm going to have to read your book. I'm quite intrigued now. Oh, uh, secondly, yeah, I'm very pleased to uh, have it finished, and um, hopefully, it'll find an audience. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, is uh, it's maybe not over for this. You know, there's maybe uh, another incarnation for it in the film or TV world. But I have to say, I have not pursued that. People have asked me about it, and I say, no, I've already been through that. <laughs> I don't even want to talk to these people at this point. So uh, we'll see what happens. But my phone's going to have to ring and ring hard. Well, the most, and, and somebody, as, as, as I've been, obviously, you're, you know, you know I will be quite curious to see if this does find a home in, you know, in, in, in the film world, um, because it, it is so, it is so movie friendly. And, you know, what you said about, about how, what a simple time it was in the seventies, I found so interesting too, because I was talking with a friend of mine and we, we, we both marveled at how many films, classic films would not be possible were they set in modern day, in the modern day, because of technology. Think of how many, in, you know, conveniences or how many plot devices, were, you know, uh, depend on people not being able to communicate in real time or how many 
you know, things would be solved by somebody able to Google some some information they didn't have they didn't have available to them in 1978 or something or something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it, so it does. So so the so the tech revolution presents us a storyteller with such challenges that you're right. Back in 1976, you just didn't have to have, and there's something refreshing and wonderful about being able to set a set something back then. What was just if I could ask you, um. Were there any episodes? I mean, you've obviously you have a, you have a long and and, and 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 colorful history in the film business, and you've you know performed in so many so many roles. Uh, you've done so many so you know, and ably and, and worked with some of the top people in the industry. Were there any memories you had in particular that found their way into this book? And you don't have to name names, obviously, but anything you know, that you were able just to call upon that helped color the journey that your character under, undergoes. Well, there was one character in there that. Actually, you know, I've kind of taken the thing verbatim, uh, this elderly woman, but that was about it. I, I have to say, I don't know where I pulled a lot of this stuff from, except that uh, I was a New York City kid. And uh, while I had one foot on both sides of the tracks, as it were, you know, in terms of my social history, uh, but I knew a lot of these people on the left side of the tracks, and I knew a lot of people on the right side, and it wasn't very hard for me to reach down and uh, pull some of these characters out, and uh, I worked in a very famous saloon in uh, New York City called Chumley's. It's had a reincarnation now, but definitely uh, gone way up in style, but that was a famous, it was a speakeasy back in the 20s, and uh, it had no sign anywhere. It was down in Greenwich Village, Bedford Street, and it had no sign. You had to know where it was. There was an alley that you could walk through or the front door, but that was totally, you couldn't tell that anything was going on inside. And... Uh, Brendan Bean used to come in there, Dylan Thomas, uh, all these different writers. They had book jackets around the wall, and it was a place for the local Irish mafia to hang out, the Italian mafia, detectives. So it was a great place for all of that. And and I have to say, I took a lot out of that joint. I was working, I was uh, in graduate school at NYU, and a wife and a small child, and I worked there for a year and a half. And there was a lot that came out, you know, just became part of me. And uh, it was a wonderful experience, I have to say, working there as a bartender. And uh, people would be three deep at the bar and you know, we had shootings, we had fights, we had Brendan Gill from The New Yorker and this guy and that guy came in and uh, it was quite a place, I have to say. And uh, I, I took a lot out of that place. And lastly, I would love to hear, uh, and I'm sure anybody listening would love to hear, you mentioned working on The Godfather Part Two. Obviously, you work with Francis Ford Coppola. Um, it's my humble opinion that Francis Ford Coppola directed maybe the three greatest American films of all time. Um, I, I, you know, Godfather's one and two and, and Apocalypse now, in my opinion, I, I don't know that 
you get more, not only just this extraordinarily crowd pleasing, but also you know, important um, as, as those films are. Um, would I wonder if you'd maybe just ruminate about your experience and maybe just the film business then, the film business now. Obviously, we know the film business is facing quite a number of challenges from you know, not only everything from the aforementioned technology to its own excesses and, and lack of vision these days and corporate overlords. If you just maybe if you have any thoughts about then and now and what you're in your opinion, um, you'd like to see. Uh, some of the measures you, you'd like to see take by the film industry in in, uh, in 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 moving forward. Well, you know, I I think all the great films in the '30s, for you know, these visionaries that came out here and uh, they put their money down uh, where their mouth was, and uh, while Charlie Bluthorn, who was the president of Paramount at the time. He wasn't exactly of that ilk, but he was close. And uh, so Francis, you know, by that time he had done Godfather 1, which was a hard fight for him. Mm-hmm. I have to say he was always in fear of getting fired and so on and so forth. And uh, and he and it came close. When Godfather 2 came along, uh, he was pretty much in control. And so I remember we started, they asked me, well, what do you think of the weather? It was March. And uh, we were supposed to have, we started shooting uh, the Festival of San Gennaro over on Sullivan Street, and it was overcast. And I said, well, it's March. I said, I'll probably stay that way. Well, it didn't. And this north wind came down and everything was crystal clear and uh, Gordy wouldn't shoot it. And Francis went with him. And finally, Charlie Bullenhorn came down and said, Francis, Francis, you know, what are you doing? It was three days waiting for the sun, and we had these forklifts trying to lift blacks up to the top of the tenement buildings and try and give us some shade. And Francis just, you know, gestured to Gordy, and Gordy looked at the sun, and... That was it. I mean, you know, he had the ability to uh, ride out the weather and ride out whatever was going, and he had the courage to do it. A lot of other people, certainly in the TV world, would just say, you know, we're shooting, forget about it, you know, and uh, or we'll fix it in post, which you can do now to a certain degree. And uh, that's one of the worst things, I think, is this ability now to keep tweaking and fixing things. And uh, I think it takes a long, a lot away from the actual creativity and the angst of uh, suffering and trying to make a film and make it right in the beginning, as opposed to, you know, well, we'll fix it in post. Yeah, that's it's a good point. And I think you, hit it, you really you know, hit the nail on the head with the idea that, you know, here are artists who were putting the art first saying, look, the shot and the, you know, the composition is crucial import to the film's quality and putting the art first and putting your money where your mouth is in pursuit, as opposed to the play not to lose reactivity that I think so drives the industry today, where it's the marketing people and the overseas foreign salespeople have to weigh in on it. And the studios themselves aren't really even in the movie business anymore. It's all 
kind of being cobbled together by outside financiers. And on the one hand, good because, okay, you know, great, get many people in who are passionate, who want to make a great product. On the other hand, you know, the studios were the only apparatus that, that, that could take risks and, and have them not pay off because they always, they, they, they had the long play, they had, you know, the library. Their entire bottom lines weren't so dependent on one film's performance. And with that gone, it, you know, I, I think we are facing some, some, I'm not sure the challenges are existential because people still at the end of the day do want movies. It isn't all television and television I think is getting very close to a, it is a bit of a bubble right now. It's getting close to a point where it's just going to burst. And I'm not sure that the, that the profits are there to keep it going at this prolific rate. But I, you know, I do believe that if, if the movies are going to, to have a chance that they're going to, you know, there's going to, have to be a little more reckoning as far as where the priorities are. And, re and redoubling the efforts to, to maybe recapture what allowed those great films in the 60s and 70s to come about in the first place. Yeah, well, I liked your phrase, playing not to lose, because that's uh, ubiquitous right now. But on the other hand, you know, God knows we're spitting people out of these film academies like chiclets. But uh, on the other hand, there are some, there is some good directing going on now. But... Me personally, what happened, I had a, a uh, screenplay about this, my hero, uh, Paul Watson, who's the head of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society and the most active ocean environmentalist ever. And I went around for a long time trying to sell this. And meanwhile, Paul would keep saying, well, you know, we got this campaign and we're going down to here or we're going down to Chile and chase the Patagonian fish poachers and so on and so forth. And he says, come on along. Well, these things were a month or two month long commitments. And I say, well, I got a couple of meetings next week and so on and so forth. Yes. And uh, one day he said, you know, we're going down to Costa Rica and we're going to go out to Cocos Island, bring supplies to the rangers out there and chase the shark finners and this and that. And I went, I'm going. And so I grabbed my camera and I went down there and I went out on, I don't know, six, seven, eight campaigns and made a feature documentary about it. And that, that was one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. And to just have a great subject and be able to get out there with freedom and my own camera and just shoot this thing and then put it together. It was a wonderful experience. And I've had a few others, not near like that, but close. And uh, so the idea of being able to do stuff yourself now, and that's really where writing a book comes in. So you, you write a book, it's yours. It, can't take that away from you, you know, and uh, so hopefully there's more as the cameras get smaller and things get more mobile and the post-production gets simpler uh, and less expensive. We'll have a blizzard of stuff out there, but in, in there, I think we'll have some great gems and uh, I think it's happening now and uh, will continue and maybe even increase. Well, I, I, amen to that. I, I, I couldn't agree more. 
Well, I think we're going to wrap up now. Uh, it's wonderful to talk to you, Ron. Um, I'm so happy to gotten a copy of your book. And I just think what you've done here is wonderful. And, and, only, uh, and my, my respect for your work only deepened in hearing, the pro hearing your process and the, the life experience that went into this. Thank you, David. Well, I'm David Kukoff, author of Children of the Canyon and editor of Los Angeles in the 1970s. It's been my immense pleasure to speak today with Ronald Colby, author of Night Driver, available on Rare Bird Books and in bookstores everywhere. Thank you so much, Ron. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You as well.